Now before Johnny comes to uh, preach, let me read today's passage, which you'll find in Hebrews uh, chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you might want to um, open it, the book of Hebrews. Johnny's going to focus on the first four verses of chapter 1, but we're going to read down to verse 4 of chapter 2. So let me read the passage. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, Distributed according to his will. Amen. Let me just pray. Lord, as we turn to your living word, 
We ask that you would quieten our hearts and speak into our lives. Please help Johnny as he brings your truth to us. May your spirit lead and help him. May your spirit be at work in all of our hearts this morning. We ask this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Now we're going to be spending the next few minutes thinking about that um, passage that Kevin's just read for us. Please do have that open in front of you if you're able to do that um, as I speak over the next um, few minutes. Now as Kevin mentioned, um, I think really in the introduction this morning, um, his uh, outrage, shock that we've now reached December, and it is true, uh, we have arrived, uh, which is the time of year when alongside cooking programmes and uh, wall-to-wall Christmas movies, Uh, TV channels start compiling their reviews of the year at the top 10 moments of 2022. And I wonder whether any of those reviews will highlight the Stockholm Marathon that took place in June this year. The race was won by a man called Felix Kirwa in a time of 2 hours and 11 minutes. And that speed is, is remarkable in itself. But what makes it more remarkable is that he and some other competitors had been in the leading pack until about the 30-kilometre mark when race officials kind of inexplicably pointed them in the wrong direction. And so what makes Kirwa's marathon time even more extraordinary is that he ran the race that quickly despite having to run an extra kilometre. Whilst Kirwa managed to recover, though, the others who were sent in the wrong direction with him weren't so fortunate. Indeed, one of them went from being in second place when they were at the 30-kilometre mark to finishing in fourth spot. You see, Felix Kirwa aside, running a good race is generally only possible when you're travelling in the right direction, isn't it? When you don't drift off course. And that principle is one that's going to shape our Sunday mornings, this Sunday and over the next three in the run-up to Christmas. We aren't going to be learning, you'll be glad to hear, how to run a marathon, but how to run the race of the Christian life. Because the people being addressed in the letter we're going to be thinking about, the letter to the Hebrews, are in danger of drifting off course as Christians. And you might have piped that up in our reading this morning, actually. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, says the author, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This whole letter was written to keep Christians running in the right direction, to keep them going, persevering all the way to the end of the race. But, what does any of that have to do with Christmas, you might be wondering? This is an Advent series, as yet, during this service, there's been no mention of frankincense, of mangers, not a single shepherd in sight. It doesn't sound very festive at all. Well, though the problem might not sound very festive, the problem of spiritual drift, the remedy for that problem certainly is... Because the antidote to drift, to to, to running in the wrong direction as a Christian, is quite simple, says the author of Hebrews. He summarizes it for us in chapter 3, verse 1. Let me just read that verse to you. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, 
you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think about him. And and, and not as we might imagine him to be, but the full-throated, no-holds-barred Jesus of the Bible. That's what the author of Hebrews gives most of his airtime to, telling us about what Jesus is really like and why he's so much better than we might otherwise think. So that's what we're going to do through Advent. We're going to consider Jesus. And more particularly than that, we'll consider the coming of Jesus in flesh and blood. We'll think about four different aspects of that coming, one each week. And this Sunday's reason is very simple, but it's absolutely profound. Jesus came to reveal. Let's think about that under our first heading. Next slide, please, Samuel. Thank you. God has spoken. Now, as as we read the opening couple of verses a few minutes ago, even if that was the first time you'd ever heard them before, I wonder if you got a sense as to what the main idea is. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God spoke. The God of the Bible is a speaking God. Now that might not sound like a big deal, but it really, really is. I used to work in Edinburgh City Centre, and every day I would walk into work along pretty much the same route to get to, to my office, as did quite a lot of others as it happens. And so even though I would see thousands of, of faces on the road in, well, there were certain faces among them that I came to recognise, folks whom I would see pretty much every day. And I chatted to a few of them uh, over time, just brief exchanges, first thing in the morning, but uh, people were mostly in a bit of a hurry um, at that time of the day, uh, which is fair enough. And yet it was possible to infer some things about people over time, just by seeing them regularly. Uh, So you could tell uh, what people did for a living sometimes by the uniform they wore or the lanyard perhaps they had around their neck. You could tell, interestingly, how physically fit some of them were by how quickly they walked into work. You could even sometimes tell what kind of music they liked, depending on on how good their earphones were at cancelling out noise. But though I had a a pretty decent, well-informed guess about people based on what I could observe of them, I could never really say that I knew any of them. I knew about them, but I didn't know them. Because, you see, I hadn't ever really spoken to them. See, speaking... And listening to someone speak, well, that's how we get to know people, isn't it? Not just know about them, observe things about them, but know them. And that's what makes this first point just worth stopping to ponder for a moment, that God, the God of the Bible, is a speaking God. See, it is possible for us to infer some things about God from his work in the world, As you look at creation, at nature, you can infer that he is creative by the sheer extent of his creative work. You can infer that he is ordered in how he has ordered that world, for example. But we can't really know him from that alone. 
Which is why it's such good news that he hasn't left us with that alone. That he has spoken. The infinite, eternal God has revealed himself in such a way in which limited creatures like you and I can understand. He's done so, verse 1, in many ways, through, through prophets, through messengers, directly and audibly, on, on stone tablets, principally through the scriptures. He has revealed himself to people, and that is a remarkable thing when you pause to think about it. And it's a remarkable thing, even in this cultural moment. You might have seen this past week that there's been a decline in the number of people in other parts of the UK, in England and Wales, who would officially define themselves as Christians. The number has fallen below 50%, apparently, which, to be honest, felt quite high, um, as far as I'm concerned in the first instance. But whilst most people might not identify as being Christians anymore, lots and lots of people do still believe in some kind of higher being. Some kind of God, even. Even people who have have no desire to have anything to do with institutional or structured religion have some sense that something or someone is out there. But you see, to make sense of that, people are forced to do a lot of guessing, of speculating about what that higher power might be like. So you hear people say things like, I like to think that God is dot, dot, dot. Or, or, or the God I worship would never dot, dot, dot. But you see, the thing is, we don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate to work out what the God of the Bible is like. He isn't hiding himself from us in that sense. God has spoken, communicated himself to us in ways we can understand. And that is just a remarkable thing. And yet that remarkable thing only gets more remarkable still in what the author of Hebrews says. And we'll see that under our second heading. God has spoken climactically in Jesus. Verses 2 and 3. Just read with me verse 1 again. Long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. By his son. Now I have a a picture I want to show you this morning. I'm not sure if you'll be able to see it from the back of the room. I should have really got it blown up. Can you see that from the back of the room? Or at least see that there is something in my hand from the back of the room. I see some people taking uh, glasses on. That's okay. This is a scan. It's a baby scan um, of the little one whom Fiona and I are hoping to meet at the end of March next year. And these scans are really amazing things. The the detail you can see of tiny hands and, and, and feet and noses. The scan picture is good. It's really, really good. But you see, there are still some things about baby that we're unsure of. What color will his or her hair be? Will he or she have their mummy's eyes? Will he or she have their daddy's chin? Please do be praying that for his or her sake that they don't. See, the scan picture is wonderful. But when the little one arrives, well, it'll make sense of all of the uncertainties we still have, won't it? We'll be able to see hair color and eye color, chin size even. And that's something like the dynamic being described in Hebrews chapter 1. 
God spoke through messengers, through prophets in the Old Testament, and that was wonderful. It was a really, really good thing. But you see, in Jesus, in the arrival of the baby that first Christmas time, well, God didn't send another messenger, another envoy to tell us what he's like. No, Jesus is what he is like. At Christmas, in the incarnation, God himself appeared. Now, it's important that we're clear on what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't matter anymore. You might have heard that kind of thing being said before, that now Jesus has come, he is the ultimate revelation of God, so we don't need the Bible anymore. But just notice, that isn't the conclusion that the author of Hebrews draws. If anything, he goes quite the opposite direction. We saw that in uh, chapter 2. So in chapter 1 he says, God has spoken climactically in the person of Jesus. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And again, that makes sense. Think back to the, the, the baby scan idea from a moment or two ago. When a baby is born, you don't then throw the scan picture out, do you? No, you still look at it, but you look at it in a different way. Because you see all of the, the, the bumps and the outlines and the shapes in the scan, well, they make sense. We can understand what they were pointing to. And similarly, those, those pictures, God speaking at many times and in various ways, was good. It was wonderful, in fact. But having God come down, Jesus as the climax of God's revelation, makes things so much better. Now, it is just worth pausing for a moment and asking what any of that has to do with us. Why is any of that helpful for us today? Well, remember that the author of Hebrews is primarily writing to address a problem, the, the problem of spiritual drift. And as you read through the letter, there seem to have been a few different reasons for that drift. One reason, it seems, was weariness. So we read in chapter 10 of Hebrews that the people being written to had suffered. They'd faced opposition for being Christians, even for associating with other Christians. In chapter 12, we read that they're struggling to remain obedient to God, to fight against sin in their lives. And in both instances, they're getting weary They're tired of those struggles, struggles against opposition and against sin. Endurance is difficult for these Christians. And if you're a Christian, I wonder if you might be able to empathize with that. If you've ever felt weary in your faith. Perhaps the the consistent feeling of being an outsider, whether in your family or your workplace, among friends, even on a wider cultural level, it starts to take its toll after a while, a drip, drip, drip. And you wonder whether it's worth swimming against the tide of popular opinion. Or whether you should start just going with the flow a bit more. That was the first reason they were tempted to drift, weariness. And it's a feeling some of us might know all too well. And the second reason they were tempted to drift was the pull of where they had come from, spiritually speaking. See, it seems that many of the first readers of this letter had previously been Jews before they became Christians. And they were feeling the pull of the kind of tangible spirituality that offered them. When they were Jews, they could could make sacrifices, for example. They could speak to a priest who would assure them they were doing the right thing, spiritually speaking. They would have tangible evidence that they were in right footing with God. 
But you see, as Christians, well, you seem to be feeling a bit less certain of things. And again, you might be able to empathise with something of that if you're a Christian. I spoke to someone just this week who's been a Christian for a long, long time, who knows in their mind that they are right with God. They're right with God all because of Jesus' death and resurrection. They've been promised eternal life. And yet they sometimes feel nervous or uncertain about how they really do stand before God when they come before him, whether they can be sure of what will happen to them when they die. And you see, in that kind of situation, when you feel a bit uncertain, well, there can be something quite attractive about being able to do certain stuff to make sure God will accept you, can't there? Maybe even have someone, a priest, for example, assure you that you've done right by God. You see, the danger of drift, drift either as a result of weariness or or a result of, of something that feels more tangible, more certain. It isn't just something that the first readers of this letter struggled with. It might be something that some of us here are struggling with too. In fact, I know it is that some of us are struggling with here too. But if that does resonate with you, what are you to do about it? We've thought about the tonic for the Hebrews' problem, haven't we? The medicine for spiritual drift, whether through weariness or the pool of tangible religion, is to consider Jesus, to have a clearer idea of who this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, really is. And we've seen that the author telling us that by telling us that that Jesus is the climax of God revealing himself to people in verses 1 and 2, and that is amazing enough in itself. But in order to convince us that Jesus really is worth sticking with, in verses 2 to 4, the author paints a picture. It's a vivid 4D picture, if you like, of the Jesus of the Bible. He gives us seven different headlines on Jesus' CV, if you like, in verses 2 to 4. Now, we're going to pick up a couple of those headlines over the next two weeks. So in order to give a good time to the rest of them, we're just going to think about the first five, and we'll do so briefly. So don't worry. Um, the first headline is this. Jesus was appointed the heir of everything. Verse 2. And I mentioned um, earlier this morning the review of the year, uh, which uh, lots of TV stations are currently compiling. Uh, and you would expect that at least... Well, most, if not all of them, will mention the death of Queen Elizabeth. That's been quite a significant moment for a lot of people this year. But perhaps more than for anyone else, it was a significant moment for her family. Significant because of the sadness of losing a mother or a grandmother, for example. But significant too because, well, things changed pretty radically for some of them personally. Charles became king pretty much overnight. Things changed for Prince William too. Overnight he became the next in line to the throne, the one who will inherit the crown and all that comes with that. But you see, there is still a big uncertainty for William about exactly what that role will look like when he comes to inherit it, what he really will be heir to. But there's no such uncertainty when it comes to Jesus' inheritance. Verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of everything. 
the whole cosmos and everything in it. It's going to be his as an heir receiving his rightful inheritance. And if we start at the end with the inheritance that will belong to Jesus, well, then we rewind back to the beginning. Read verse 2 again. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God created the whole world through Jesus. He was with God the Father in the beginning, actively involved in that creative work. And so we have the beginning involved in the creation of the world. We have the end. He'll inherit it all as rightful heir. And what's going on between times? Well, thirdly, verse 3, he upholds the universe by the words of his power. The one who made it, the one who will own it, is at the same time sustaining the entire universe every second of every day. And can you see, as the author kind of unpacks each one of these for us, the picture of Jesus just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, if that's who he is in relation to the world, the author tells us who Jesus is in relation to God. Look again at verse 3. He is the radiance of God's glory. What exactly does that mean? Well, I've heard this verse being illustrated by four, uh, before by someone saying that, uh, that Jesus reflects God's glory like a mirror reflecting the rays of the sun. But you see, I'm not sure that's quite right. Because a mirror doesn't really have any glory in itself, anything inherently valuable in itself. It's disconnected from the ray of sunshine, you see. So though it's still imperfect, a better illustration, I think, would be to say that Jesus isn't the reflection of a ray of sunshine in a mirror, but that Jesus is the ray of sunshine, radiating. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, has the same kind of of substance of glory as God the Father. And not only that, fifthly and finally, he is every bit as much God as God the Father, verse 3. Now, I wonder if you've ever seen a letter or a document that's been sealed shut with wax. It isn't that common, but you do come across it from time to time with with formal documents and that kind of thing. Um, Hot wax is applied along the seal of an envelope, and then a stamp is used to make an imprint in the wax, the exact shape of the stamp in the wax. And it might be an imprint of someone's initials, for example, perhaps a, a coat of arms, if it's an especially posh document. Well, that's the kind of image the author uses next. Only the imprint being written about isn't of initials. It's of God's godness. Verse 3, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, again, that's conceptually quite difficult for us to get our heads around. But I think the idea is that the traits that make God the Father God are inherent in Jesus as well. Those are five headlines on Jesus' CV. And as I say, with each headline, the picture being painted is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. There is nothing in this world, no square inch of the created order that could have existed had he not made it. That he won't inherit at the end of all things 
or which can even exist unless he sustains it. He has the same kind of glory as God the Father, and everything that makes God God is true of Jesus the Son too. And listen, if nothing else, that should make us marvel. Not least at Christmas time. As we think on that supreme Jesus being wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now that stretches our brains, of course, but it also forces us to our knees. It is amazing. But as well as drawing us to worship, it does have wider implications for each of us too. And those implications will be our final point this morning. Very simple point. Pay attention. Now remember the problem being addressed in the letter of Hebrews. Christians who are at risk of drifting, perhaps of walking away from the Christian faith altogether. Some through weariness of sticking with Jesus through the ups and downs of life. Some through the pull of a spiritual framework that seems more tangible, more visible, more certain than the Christian faith. Now if you were able to empathise with any of that this morning... Well, the, letter, uh, the, author to the, letter, uh, the author of the letter of Hebrews would say this to you, I think. Perhaps your Jesus isn't big enough. You aren't seeing him as he really is. So consider him. Do that just now, actually. Take a moment in the quiet of your own heart. Consider the Jesus who has been, who is... And who will be supreme over all creation. Consider the Jesus who is the exact imprint of God's nature and the radiance of his glory. And you can see what kind of impact that might have on a weary or an uncertain heart, can't you? As you feel tired from the battle of Opposition or, or, or sin in your life as a Christian and perhaps starting to wonder, gosh, is it really worth sticking with this Jesus? Well, can you see how having a clearer view of this Jesus, the one who promises as a Christian never to leave or forsake you, can you see how having a clear view of him in your mind's eye helps you to keep putting one foot in front of the other? It might persuade you that it's really worth listening to him. Or as you feel the temptation to a kind of religion that seems to be more tangible than the Christian faith because a a priest or a spiritual guru assures you of, of God's pardon, for example. Can you see how a clear view of this supreme Jesus Christ, the one who promises that he has done all that's needed to make you right with God, can you see how that helps you to stick with him? Assures you you haven't been sold a dud By sticking with him. God has spoken. Has spoken climactically in the person of Jesus. And he is awesome in the truest sense of the word. So Christian. If you feel tempted to drift. To take him less seriously perhaps. Or to stop following him altogether. Consider this Jesus in all his splendor. And don't drift from him. Pay attention to him. Now perhaps you here this morning and wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian at all. 
And it might actually be that the Christmas story that you hear year after year is part of why you wouldn't describe yourself as being a Christian. I mean, it's nostalgic and, uh, and it's familiar and it's kind of comforting in its own way. But it's ultimately irrelevant to you and your life. If it really was true, there would have to be more to it. Well, can you see the arrival of Jesus as it's held out for us in Hebrews 1? It isn't just the stuff of Christmas cards or, or, or school nativity plays. It's the arrival of the powerful, creative, supreme over all of creation, Jesus. It is the fullness of God himself taking on human flesh. So if you've dismissed the Christian faith because you think there would have to be more to it if it was really going to be worth your while, can I ask that you please think again? And actually, the picture of Jesus in Hebrews 1 makes the question of why on earth this Jesus would take on flesh, why he would walk among us, all the more pressing. We'll see aspects of that over the coming weeks. But in Hebrews 1 terms, he came to reveal, he came so we can know God. And ultimately, by dying on a cross, to be the means by which we, limited and undeserving though we are, might know God eternally. If you've never considered that before, please let me encourage you to do so this Christmas time. God has spoken. And so the question we all must answer is this. Will I listen? Let me pray as we close. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that at that first Christmas time, all of your fullness came among us in human flesh and blood. That Jesus, your son, dwelt among us. And we thank you that because that flesh and blood, Jesus, was nailed to a cross, we can be sure that we are acceptable and blameless before you. That we can know you, not just know about you, but know you in relationship for eternity. And so we ask that you would please help us this Christmas time, perhaps even for the first time, to see the baby in the manger, not as twee or nostalgic, but to see him as supreme and to trust him as our saviour. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in the name of that supreme saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.